week's time, uh, but tonight I thought we'd look at Naaman the Syrian in 2 Kings 5. It comes after 1 Kings, in case you didn't know that. So 2 Kings uh, chapter 5. We'll read the entire chapter. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went and in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that, that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious, and he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me, and stand and call on the name of the Lord, and wave his hand over the place, and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar? the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean." He returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant, when my master goes in the temple of Rimon to worship there. And he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master is spare name in this Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. 
My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mounds of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, Please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master. Uh, Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the, when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing? Olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous as white as snow. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for your providence. We are thankful that you uphold. We're thankful that you govern. We're thankful that you guide all things. And we're thankful that you do so, especially for your church. And we're thankful that you bring a great salvation in time and space to undeserving sinners. You do cleanse us from all of our sins. And we're thankful that you do so because of the blood of Christ and in time and space in the hearts and lives of your people at your appointed times. We are thankful that you are sovereign. We are thankful that you are in control. And we ask and pray that we would trust in your providences. We ask and pray that as we live in this world, that we would live in a manner pleasing unto you. And whatever circumstance comes our way, that we would honor you in all that we do. So thank you for your mighty cleansing. Thank you for your gracious, graciousness. Thank you that we can learn of this this night as we consider your salvation that you bring to Naaman. And we ask and pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds further as we consider your word that we would grow in the difficult things, that we would grow uh, in the basic things, that we would build off those basic things, and that we would grow further into maturity uh, as your people, as Christians, as those who've been called by Christ. So help us to do so by your Spirit. Help us to be fed by your Spirit. And we pray that your Spirit would aid us tonight. Help us to be awake and attentive. And we pray that you would speak to us through your Word. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, all of God's people go through many unexplained events in our lives. And one thing that it teaches us is that we are not in control whatsoever. God is in control of all things. God is the one who governs all things. And thankfully, we can put our faith and trust in him, knowing that he knows what's best for his people. And certainly we see that today with respect to this healing of Naaman. It's about Naaman being cleansed, but we see a lot, a lot of God's providences that lead to Naaman being cleansed. And certainly there are many things we must remember as we come and consider this healing, and we must know the history behind what's going on in the history of Israel with respect to where we are. And as you've been with us for some time, you know we've talked about the divided kingdom often. This is the time of the divided kingdom. Remember, it was rend in two. We have uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. So this is the time of uh, Jehoram, the son of Ahab. And if you remember, there is no good king in Israel. There was no righteous king whatsoever in Israel. And yet now we see and read of a healing of a Gentile. We read of the salvation of Naaman, the Syrian, that teaches us something about who our God is, but also gives a bit of a warning for Israel as well at the time that this uh, takes place and at the time that this is 
written. So there's this failure in Israel, failure in the north. There is this apostasy and wickedness that they've engaged in throughout their entire uh, history. And so then the Lord sends these prophets, Elijah, and then we're also now during the time of Elisha. And with Elisha, we see the just judgment on Israel. He is going to guide that faithful remnant through this dark and difficult time. Uh, and so there's a lot of themes that we see throughout 2 Kings about judgment and exile, but there are also uh, pockets of God's grace, pockets of God's goodness that we see uh, throughout this book. Now, I do think one problem is very clear with respect to what we see here. That's the problem of the uncleanly reality of sin. Sin makes us filthy. Sin makes us vile before God Most High, and we need to be washed. We need to be cleansed. We need to be washed of our sins. And certainly we see that with Naaman the Syrian. And so this is a good comfort and reminder for the faithful remnant. It's a good comfort and reminder for all of the people of God that we can put our faith in an all-powerful, all-governing God who controls all things, including the cleansing of his people, including the salvation of his elect. And that's what we need to see in 2 Kings 5, how Yahweh shows his mighty cleansing power. He is teaching Israel that he is the God they can put their faith and trust in. The problem is they do not do so. But yet we see God's mighty act of salvation in the life of Naaman. So we'll look at this cleansing of Naaman under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see God's small servants in verses 1 through 7. Secondly, we'll see God's mighty cleansing in verses 8 through 19. Then lastly, we'll see God's righteous warning in verses 20 through 27. So God's small servants, God's mighty cleansing, then we'll see God's righteous warning. So let's first look at God's small servants in verses 1 through 7. And in verses 1 through 4, we do see a raid for the glory of God. And so first of all, we're introduced to Naaman in verse 1. We see now Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, uh, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. We see this recognition that God has already used him for a specific purpose. God has already worked through Naaman, even though Naaman was not a believer. We must recognize that God governs and controls all things, including by Naaman, uh, he brought, uh, God, Naaman brought great victory uh, for his king in Syria. He was doing what he was supposed to do as the commander of the king of Syria, the commander of the army of the king of Syria. So he's a great and honorable man. Notice the writer draws our attention to his greatness, but he also highlights where it came from. The problem is this time, Naaman doesn't recognize where that came from. Naaman thinks it probably comes from him. We're going to see his response to Elisha that he can't uh, fathom the fact that, that Elisha would not even come out to him. And so we see here that uh, Naaman thinks that this is because of him. Naaman thinks it is because of what he has done. He doesn't realize by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. God providentially raises up governments, but he also thankfully providentially brings them down as well. And certainly we see that here. By God's providence, we see that Naaman it brings great victory for the king of Syria. He is a mighty man of valor, a mighty warrior, but there is a problem. Another providential plight, or in this case, another uh, 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 work of God's providence, we see his plight. He's a mighty man, 
but he is a leper. Now in Israel, that was a sign of uncleanness. That was a sign of one is a social pariah. It's that skin disease that would have separated someone from the camp of Israel. And so as an Israelite who's reading this, they're probably scoffing. They're probably cringing because here is this one who has leprosy. This man is not only a Syrian, but he's also a leper. So he is doubly unclean. He, is du he doubly should be kicked out of that camp or not invited into the camp. But we must remember his leprosy because it's going to paint an important illustration when we see Gehazi as he is the one who receives that, lepr uh, that leprosy at the end for his wickedness. But we'll get there towards the end. But for now, we see he is a leper. It's God's providential plight he put upon Naaman, and he's going to turn it for the good of Naaman. And so God's providence continues with a Syrian raid. Verse 2, And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. We're going to see God's providence through a young girl. She's going to be removed from her family and given to Naaman, but she's going to speak about the prophet of Israel. She's going to speak about the prophet Elisha. And again, consider the whole context. There was no, the, the, um, the northern tribe was filled with wickedness. Remember Elijah after he battles the prophets of Baal? He's like, Lord, please take me. I can't go on any longer. And then God says to him, yeah, there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Well, here is a little girl who has not bowed the knee to Baal. Here is this little one who perhaps was family. Perhaps the assumption seems to be they were part of that faithful remnant. And yet in God's providence, they would have been killed in the raid. And this little girl would have been taken. And she speaks about her, uh, the prophet. She speaks about the prophet of the Lord. And so we see that. She's speaking to the mistress. She's speaking to Naaman's wife, verse 3. She says to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And again, it's likely a tragic story. Dale Ralph Davis says, In Yahweh's providence, in this story, everything hangs on this little girl, on her tragic servitude. Without her, Naaman would never have been healed. People are often brought into the kingdom of God at great cost to other people. So her story is tragic, and yet God turns it for the good of this Naaman, the Syrian. So we see this raid for the glory of God. Naaman then goes to his master, and he says in verse 4, uh, tells his master, thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. And then we see that the king is happy to oblige. The king in uh, Syria is happy to have Naaman go and be rid of this wicked and awful disease. And so uh, we see in verse 5, Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. We're going to see responses by two kings. We see the revealing responses, really, of the king of Israel. The king in Syria is happy to be like, Yeah, go, whatever you can do to get some sort of treatment to rid you of this disease. And we're going to see the faithlessness of the king of Israel. So the king in Syria, he says, go, I'm going to send a letter. Now, there's a lot of assumptions with this, with this letter. There's a lot of assumptions with all of the, the, the caravan of things that they're going to bring. They assume that the wonder workers are in the king's court. That is why the king of Syria is writing to the king in Israel. 
he's saying that he assumes that this prophet is in the king's court. Now, as we're going to see, he does not like the king at all. In fact, he kind of mocks the king. He kind of jokes with the king, or not jokes with him, but kind of uh, mocks him. Uh, and certainly, they're not on speaking or not on good terms. And so we see, but first, this caravan of riches, verse 5. So he departed, took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. So there's the assumption that the wonder worker is in the king's court, but there's also the assumption that the prophet needs to be bought. That is why there is this caravan of riches. They're assuming that the prophet's only going to do something, that the God of Israel is only going to do something if he's paid first. And so we have this caravan of riches. We see the assumption of the king of Syria. We see he assumes various things. And Elisha, Yahweh, they're going to shatter all of those assumptions. But first of all, let's see the neglect of the king of Israel in verse 7, his revealing response. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. You see, there is no faith in Israel. There's no trust in the God of, of, of Israel. There's no trust in him. We see there's no faith in Yahweh. Now, there's going to be a contrast with Elisha and a contrast with Naaman, but there's also a contrast with that little girl. The little girl, this no-name servant whose life is filled with tragedy, is a remnant of Israel, a remnant in Israel, one who loves Yahweh, one who trusts in Yahweh, one who looks to him. Here's this great king, supposedly, Jehoram, and yet here he is, fearful. Here he is not trusting. Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me? He's probably doing it to pick a fight. That is his assumption. He does not trust in the power of God. And Israel as a whole has been the same as well. That's why they go to pagans. That's why they try and worship all the gods that they can to try and elicit a response from them, to try and get things from them rather than to trust in Yahweh who is good who has provided good things for them, yet they continue to spit in his face. They do not trust in the promise of God. Now, I think one thing we can take away and one thing we'll take away throughout this entire chapter is the importance of remembering God's providential care. Everything in life is providential, isn't it? Everything in life, good or bad. I mean, what happens with this gal, it is a frowning providence, and yet God turns it for good. But we must remember that God all works things for what? For the good of those who are called according to his purpose. So whatever circumstance you are in, dear brethren, whatever frowning providence you are enduring, know A, that it is of God, and B, he's going to turn it for your good. We might not know when that good is, though, could be 20 years down the road, could be 15 years down the road. We might always understand the specific reason for why this specific event happens. We know the overarching reason, 
It is to glorify God. It is for our sanctification. But we might not always know the specific reason why something takes place, but we can trust in our God. And even think about providence for a sec. We, were ne- we didn't choose where we were born, right? This little girl didn't choose what time she was born in, did she? She didn't choose that. There are many Christians around the world who were born into hostile situations. Many Christians who are born into places where it's going to be difficult to be a Christian in that place. Hardship, difficulty, trials, but yet we have a God that we can trust in, who is pleased to save sinners, who is the one who governs and controls all things. Davis says his sway extends from parliaments and war departments to the doorknobs and phone calls and parking places of life. All of it is God's providence, isn't it? God is good, God is gracious, and God is providentially upholding all things. He is doing so for the good of his people and for his glory. And thankfully, he does so by way of small servants. So that's God's small servants. Let's then look secondly at God's great healing or God's mighty cleansing in verses 8 through 19. God's great healing or God's mighty cleansing. And notice in verses 8 through 14, we see a mighty river. And for those that are writing things down, I'm doing air quotes on purpose because it's not a mighty river, is it? And that's important. Notice verse 8. First of all, Elisha mocks the king, which is funny. So verse 8, So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Why are you being such a drama queen? There, Have him come to me. Have him come, and that I may show him that there is this prophet in Israel, he challenges the king. You should know better, king, that there is a prophet in Israel. You should understand that. And may this name in the Syrian know that, know that as well. And so after he you know, tells the king to send Naaman to him, we see Naaman then comes, verse 8. And we see God is going to do this healing by way of a small river. And Naaman knows that. Naaman recognizes that. And notice verse 9. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot. He stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Here is the word of God. Here is what God says. Most of the time we don't want to do that, do we? And notice how it starts with Naaman. He doesn't want to do that. And so we see Naaman's response. Verse 11. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord and wave his hand all over the place and heal the leprosy. He thought Elisha should have fawned all over him. He is this mighty commander. He is this honorable man. And yet Elisha won't even come out and greet him in person But there is an important reason for that, which we shall see. So he's assuming uh, that Elisha is going to be like other wonder workers. Wave his hands. Do some sort of, say some funky words. And then all of a sudden, he's going to be healed. That is what he is assuming is going to happen. He assumes he's a wonder worker like the other nations. But the people of God, the prophets of God, are not meant to be that way. 
Brethren, when we pray to God as Christians, we're not supposed to what? Heap up many words because if we do so, we're like the pagan. That is almost like we're chanting, repeating ourselves. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6. The same thing is true with respect to fast. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the many words in, uh, uh, in Matthew chapter 6. We're not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to pray as though we have this familiar, familiarity with our Father. He's not distant. He is you know, certainly transcendent, but we have this nearness with him. We don't have to treat him like, he, like we're pagans or treat him like a pagan god. We can call upon him and he hears us. The same thing is true here. Now, the, the nations and the wonder workers from other nations, they thought it was all, they did pomp and show type of things, but that is not what it is supposed to be. Elisha is different. Yahweh is different. And Naaman's going to learn that very soon. But for now, he's just getting his bee in a bonnet because he's not being fond all over. Then he looks at the river. He looks at the Jordan. And he says, are there not, verse 12, are not the Abana and the Far Par, the river of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Look at this dinky thing. Why would you wash in that? It's probably filthy. It's probably gross. There are bigger rivers. He assumes that bigger is always better. He assumes that the bigger the place, the more likely it is it's going to, should I not go there? Better than all the waters of Israel, not the Abna and the Farpar and the rivers of Nath, better than this river? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in a rage. Davis says, we not only want God's benefit, but we want to specify the way in which he must bring it. Don't we want it, God's things, in our ways, rather than trusting that God will give us good things according to God's ways? I mean, that's a good lesson throughout this, uh, this chapter. So the sovereign God has become our errand boy. He assumes there's better rivers. He assumes that he'll do it his way rather than trusting in God's way. And he goes away in a rage and with this expectation that does not seem at this point come to pass. So he turned and went away in a rage. But thankfully, he has kind and bold servants who are willing to speak with him. Again, in God's providence, another nameless servant. Notice verse 14. Sorry, verse 13. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? It's a small thing, just bathe in that little river for seven times and see what happens. But they recognize that if he had said something great and he waved his hands, go jump in the river, or I don't know, be in there 25 times, who knows? Maybe he would have done it. How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Again, God is using these men by way of providence, and he's going to bring that cleansing upon Naaman. And so we see that he listens, verse 14. He does all according to the man of God. He went down, dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. We see the washing of regeneration. We see the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Certainly this is a good example of what we looked at this morning in Titus chapter 3. It's what... God does. He cleanses us from all of our sins. He washes us so that we are white as snow. 
And the whole purpose of this is to show Yahweh's power. That's why it was the small river. That's why Elisha didn't walk out because Naaman had his expectations and yet God shatters all those expectations to show that salvation is of God. God and God's ways are better than man's ways. So he's cleansed. We see God's mighty cleansing by way of this mighty river. But we also see God's understanding grace in verses 15 through 19. We see this gracious confession by Naaman in verses 15 and 16. And he returned to the man of God, and he and all his aides, he came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. Now, remember, this is in Israel in the time of apostasy. And yet here is a Syrian who recognizes and confesses because of the mighty power of God that God is the only God. That the God of Israel is the only God in all the earth. There is no other. He puts his faith in Yahweh. We see great change in Naaman. Your servant, he says, please take this gift from your servant before he assumed that Elisha should serve him. Now he's saying, I am now your servant. We see that great change in Naaman. And the whole point again is to teach about the greatness of God, but also this is where that caravan comes in, in verse 17, sorry, verse 16. Elisha responds, he says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. He urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman just wants, God has done something good. He just wants to give it to Elisha. So no, no fault on Naaman's part, but Elisha is teaching Naaman a lesson. He's teaching all Israel a lesson. God cannot be bought. What is the essence of paganism? Gods can be bought. But with respect to Christian religion, with respect to the true religion, God cannot be bought, but he is pleased to give. And that is the lesson that Naaman needs to learn. That's the lesson that Israel should have learned as well, but they do not. He cannot be bought. So it's refused. And then Naaman gives this request, and he asks for pardon for life situations. This might cause our head to spin, but just follow along with me. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to the other gods, but to the Lord. He wants to take a piece of the promised land and bring it to Syria so that he has it with him. He's not going to offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other gods, but to the Lord. And so, again, he can't go to Israel, but he's a true believer, and he still wants to do that very thing. And so he does so on this mound that he's taken from Israel. I'm not saying you do that. I'm not saying you set up in your garden a place where you sacrifice, not that you do that, but we're not, that's not the point. We're not supposed to do that very thing. We come and worship God according to his ways, but Naaman cannot be in Israel. And so God is being gracious. We're going to see that Elisha says, go in peace. He's going to take those mounds of earth. But then he says in verse 18, with respect to his position, God's goodness and grace in a very messy situation. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. Verse 18, when my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, he leans on my hand. And I bow down in the temple of Rimon, 
when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Notice that he's not going to stop being a commander. He's still going to do his job as a commander of the army of Syria. He can't just flee. There's no indeed.com that he can go find another job. He's going to go back to Syria and do his job. And one of the things he has to do as the king's right-hand man is when he goes into the temple of Rimon and the king is worshiping Rimon, he's going to put his hand on Naaman and Naaman has to bow his head. And he's always done that throughout his life and he was actually bowing to Rimon, but this time he still has to, he still has to do that for his job. But he's saying to Elisha, know this, I'm not worshiping Rimon, even though he goes to that temple. And so we see this is a difficult harsh, troubling situation for Rimon. We see that sensitivity that he has as one who's been changed. May the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. And Elisha says, verse 19, go in peace. So he departed from him at a short distance. Now I'm not saying we go into another temple and I'm not saying that very thing. But the point is you see the messiness of life for Naaman and how understanding and gracious God is. Gill says his request to the prophet or to the Lord is not for pardon for a sin to be committed, nor to be indulged in his continuance of it, not to worship the idol along with his master, nor to disassemble the worship of it, when he really worshiped it not, nor to be excused any evil in the discharge of his post and office, but for pardon of the sin of idolatry he had been guilty of, of which he was truly sensible now sincerely acknowledges and desires forgiveness for. That is, he know, he's asking for forgiveness for what he did, but he's also needing uh, encouragement and aid for when he still has to engage in his job. When I go there, when I bow down in the temple of Rimen, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Again, not to be all evangelical all the time, but the word messy just describes it. Right? Sometimes evangelicals can use the word messy to try and excuse a lot of sins. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying here is life is just messy. There's difficulties. There's hard decisions people have to make. People can be put in a rock, in a, between a rock and a hard place. And we need sometimes some understanding. And one example that I've thought of and one example I've mentioned before uh, is with, with respect to what is called the Confessing Church during the time of Nazi Germany. Perhaps if you were like me before I read that, I used to think, why, why would anybody be a Nazi? Why would anybody vote Hitler in, you know, back in 1933? Why would anybody do that? Let's be honest here, brethren, we have no idea about that situation. We have no idea what was going on. I remember reading this book and the lady was talking about how after World War I, this German lady, they would cross, she would cross over into France and they were treated poorly. They were treated like the laughing stock of the world. They were treated like nothing. So here comes this guy who, get this, is pro-Germany. So he sounds good, doesn't he? And then even after he comes in and the confessing church is standing against him, there was still pastors who thought maybe we should be part of the Nazi party perhaps trying to change it from within. There are others who said that maybe we shouldn't. There was still strife. There was infighting. There was not infighting, but they didn't know what to do. So the point is to think that we would, at that time, that we wouldn't be part of that party or we wouldn't vote in Hitler, that is what is called hubris. That is what is called arrogance. Because let's be honest, we have no idea what we would do. 
And the point really is to highlight the fact that life is filled with messy situations. And we need God's grace and wisdom to do the best we can in those situations. And God helps and aids uh, Naaman with respect. And when I go in there, when I bow down, I am not bowing to Rimon. Please pardon me. And Elisha says, go in peace. So he departed from him uh, for a short distance. God is gracious to save. God is gracious and kind to help us in life circumstances. And certainly we do see with Naaman this great astonishing faith, especially in contrast to what we see in the life of Israel at this time. So that's God's mighty cleansing or God's uh, gracious healing. Let's then look thirdly and finally at God's righteous warning. I have to close on a bit of a warning note. Verses 20 through 27, because remember this was written for Israel. They needed to learn a lesson. They need to learn who God is and his goodness and graciousness, but they need to learn something about this righteous God, the God who is righteous. And so we see Gehazi's greed. This is the picture of Israel at this time. This is what they are like. They are mercenaries. Verse 20. And Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master is spared Naaman this Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. Really? God really just gives things without receiving? Yes, but he doesn't know that. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. It's not as though, oh, Naaman's gone. He has to go after him. He has to run after him to try and get this. And what he's going to do, he's going to be demeaning to Naaman. He's going to be demeaning to Yahweh. And he's going to demean the message of who Yahweh is. God does not need anything, but he is, gives freely. God is gracious and good. And yet Gehazi's greed is going to perhaps reverse that with Naaman. Now Naaman Again, no fault on his part at this point. But so Gehazi goes, verse 21, pursues Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? Then we see this small request, but it's a lie and it's deceit. Verse 22, and he said, all is well. My master sent me saying, indeed, just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a just a talent. Just a talent of silver. Could you please give us that? I mean, there's 10, 000, 10 talents of silver that he brought. Just one of them. One for each. Could we do that? Two, um, so a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And of course, Naaman's going to do it. Naaman's received much. Yes, okay, that's fine. I, I would be happy to give it. So we see Naaman's generous spirit. Please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver into two bags with two chains of garments. And he handed them to two of his servants and they carried them on ahead of him. He takes this pay or he takes this payment. But again, Elisha doesn't take the payment to show that Yahweh is not like the other pagan gods. And so this is a major error. It's not reversing all that God had done for Naaman. But it's perhaps teaching and perhaps communicating something it ought not to. But again, that lesson is not for Naaman. That lesson is primarily for Israel. God cannot be bought. And so it continues, verse 24, When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. 
Then he let the men go and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master. God knows everything, doesn't he? I mean, we can't escape his providence, right? We can't escape him because he is omniscient. And so we see, where did you go? (laughs) Where did did you go, Gehazi? And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. Well, we know that's wrong. And God knows that's wrong. And we're going to see Elisha knows that's wrong. And Gehazi should have known better. See how theology leads to right practice? Knowing that God is omniscient (laughs) should help us in our Christian walk to know that God knows and sees everything. Verse 26, then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Shall we receive these things? Therefore, verse 27, let the leprosy of Naaman, uh, therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous as white as snow. He is judged by God. It's a picture of God's judgment on Israel because they do not trust in God and trust in his word. And eventually we see at the end of 2 Kings what happens. They're kicked out of the land. He is unclean out of the camp. What happens in the captivity? They are unclean. They are out of the promised land. Why? Because they rejected God. But what's interesting is our Lord Jesus uses, uses this example of Naaman in Luke 4 to highlight the unbelief of Israel. Israel in Jesus' day, here is the Messiah. He has come. And what do they do? They kill him. They reject him. How wicked man truly is. And so Jesus speaks about Naaman in the context of a rebellious and unbelieving people. He reads Isaiah 61 in chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. Then in verse 21, he says to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Here it is, Isaiah 61. It's happening right now. And so they say, all who bore witness and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And then he goes on to talk about this physician. uh, You will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. They also wanted signs and wonders, didn't they? The waving of hands, verse 24. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. That's certainly true with Elisha. And our Lord, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens, a heaven was shut up three years and six months. There was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a shadow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And notice their response. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. It's a condemnation of Israel. Naaman 
is cleansed of leprosy, but the people in Israel are not because they did not trust in God. They rejected Yahweh and they rejected his messengers. At the end of 2 Chronicles, you know what it says? God was gracious to the people of Israel and he indicates how by sending prophets to warn them. What happens? They rejected the messengers. They rejected God's word. They did not trust in what his word said. And because of that, they are then rejected and kicked out of the land during the time of Second Chronicles. That's when Israel is vomited out of the promised land. But then we also see Israel is judged in AD 70 when the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, is destroyed because the old covenant has passed away and the new covenant comes in the Lord Jesus Christ, but only Naaman. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman. Now, again, this is a good reminder of the fact that God is just. And it is true that one day he shall come, Christ shall come again, and God's just judgment uh, shall be executed. Now, for those that are in Christ, the end-time judgment has come forward at Calvary's tree. That's why if you're not in Christ, you need to believe on Christ. You need to look to Christ because God is gracious and good. God cleanses from sins. Believe upon him and you shall flee the wrath to come. And that day will come. We don't know when it's going to come, but we know that it will come. And if you're not in Christ, you will be judged righteously by God forever because of the sins you have committed. And your sins against an infinite God requires an infinite, pun, uh, infinite uh, punishment or an infinite sacrifice. That's where the wisdom of God is seen in the work of Christ. The one who is God takes on a human nature. The one who is infinite becomes finite. Yet it's the one God-man who dies on Calvary's tree as the infinite sacrifice. If you're not in Christ, believe upon him and you shall be saved. You shall flee the wrath to come because God is good. What we really see here in 2 Kings 5 is a great picture of salvation. A man who was filled with rage, a man who had honor in himself, a man who was leprous. And what happens? God cleanses him from his sin and we see that great change in him. He is now humble. He is your servant. He's speaking in that way. It's what God is mighty to do because salvation comes by God not by man. Well, let us pray. Our good God, we are thankful for your great salvation, and we are thankful for the picture that we see with this Gentile who was saved. Thank you that he is the foreshadowing of all the Gentiles who, will, uh, who have and will come in. And we are thankful that uh, we know that it is not by anything that we have done, but it is by because of the work of Christ. But we also need to praise you and thank you for your providences in our own lives that led to that time when we turned our eyes upon Christ because of the regenerating work that you have done. And we know, oh God, you led us there. We know you guided us there, whether it was a kind friend who shared the gospel, whether it was the word preached and heard uh, on the Lord's Day or any or various other means, but especially the importance of that Lord's Day gathering. And we're thankful, O oh Lord, that you are pleased to um, save sinners or even through parents who share it with their children and speak concerning the gospel and the Lord with their children. 
We know, O oh Lord, though, that you are the one who can save hearts. You're the only one who changes hearts. And so you give us means. You say how what we ought to say, but help us to be comforted knowing that you are the one who does it. And so thank you for what we see with Naaman. Thank you for the salvation in, uh, in his life. Thank you for the salvation in our lives. Thank you for your providence, that you are in control of all things. So help us to put our trust in you. And we pray that we would put our trust in you as we go into the world this night. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. And we pray that you be honored and glorified in all things. We pray these things in the name of Christ.